0: Our scripture reading comes from Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love and in the spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a matter worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.
1: Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you that your presence here this morning is just as real as our very own, that your scriptures say that you inhabit the praises of your people. Uh, So, Father, once again, we pray just that your spirit would move in our hearts. Help us to understand your word, Father, uh, and use it uh, to make us more and more like you. We pray. Uh, All these things uh, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, The Bible uh, that you either have in front of you or that you uh, read up on the screen uh, this morning is is really an interesting book. The Bible is really a library. It's a library full of all sorts of different books that represent all sorts of, of different genres and uh, different types of literature. If you've been with us for the past couple months, we've been hanging out in the Old Testament, reading crazy stories from uh, the book of Judges. Those are all narrative stories. But as you get to the New Testament, things change a little bit. After the, the book of Acts, which is a kind of narrative historical book, uh, you get to a whole series of letters uh, that many people have called uh, epistles. Epistles. And the bulk of these letters uh, were written by Paul, who was one of the foremost uh, apostles of Jesus Christ. And a large part of the the New Testament is attributed to Paul. Paul, if you know his story, has an interesting one. He was a persecutor of the church. He would uh, go from city to city trying to find Christians and dragging them into prison or executing them. He brutally hunted Christians for many, many years. He did that until something powerful happened to him on the Damascus Road, and on the Damascus Road, he met Jesus Christ himself. And when that happened, everything in Paul's life changed. He went from persecuting Christians to now being the foremost leader in the movement of Christianity in the ancient world. And Paul was also a, a traveler. He traveled uh, all over the ancient Near East sharing the message of the gospel from city to city everywhere he went, planting churches everywhere he went. And he would often take other men with him and train them uh, as they planted churches, as they shared the message of the gospel, and he would train them to go out and to plant churches in different cities Uh, All throughout the ancient Near East. And one of those men was a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras was the one who planted a church in the city called Colossae that we just read about. Colossae was uh, a major city uh, in the ancient world, but it was a major city that was kind of on the decline. Uh, It was very prominent for a large portion of its history, but then the cities near it were starting to grow faster than they were, so this city was now on decline when Paul wrote this letter. It was a very prosperous city. It was uh, commercial. It was known to have the best uh, glossy black wool in all of uh, the ancient world. And even, even because of that, it was centered on agriculture and all sorts of different types of commerce. Uh, Many people think that when Paul uh, wrote this letter uh, to the Colossians, uh, that it was right after or either right before a major earthquake that had just happened in the city of Colossians that had destroyed a large part of the city. Now, what was interesting and what is interesting about this letter is that Paul himself actually never went or never attended or met the people in the city of Colossae. He never met these believers that he was writing to, and yet in spite of that, he writes them this incredibly affectionate letter. And what makes that even more interesting is that most people think that Paul was in prison when he wrote this very sweet and affectionate letter to the people of Colossians. I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes when my wife is on the phone, I will overhear her conversation and I'll try to piece together the conversation based on just what I hear her say on one half of the conversation. And then when she hangs up, I make this arrogant presumption that I know everything about what she talked about, but usually I am way off. It's very different often than what I assume. And in some ways, that's one of the challenges of reading these epistles in the New Testament, because when we read them, we're really only reading one side of the discussion. So we often have to piece together or guess what is going on in the church by simply reading through the lines of some of the things that Paul is saying. And we even have to do this a little bit in this book of Colossians. But in the very end, what we can't escape when we read this letter, what is all over this letter, is the fact that Paul has a profound and deep love for this church and the Christians that made up this community in Colossians, because the letter drips with passion and affection for these people and for their church. Now, this was originally probably a handwritten letter, a handwritten letter that Paul, he didn't have email, he didn't have typewriters or anything. So he wrote these letters handwritten and sent them out to the people of Colossians. And I think that's sometimes hard for us to understand because we as a culture have gotten out of practice of, of writing letters, of actually sitting down and handwriting letters. Of course, Maybe when you were dating or wooing your spouse, maybe you wrote a a couple love letters back in the day uh, to try to get some attention from uh, someone else. But we don't often write letters like this in our culture uh, anymore. Uh, When I was looking up on the Internet this week, I found uh, a letter that was handwritten from President Gerald Ford in 1974. It was a a handwritten letter that he wrote to his wife, Nancy Ford, uh, just after she discovered uh, that she had cancer. And you can actually see the letter handwritten. It has White House on the, the very top of it of this memo letter. And it said this, he wrote this to his wife, "'No words can adequately express our deep, deep love.'" We know how great you are, and we, the children and dad, will try to be as strong as you. Our faith in you and God will sustain us. Our total love for you is everlasting. Husbands, you ever written a letter like that to your wife? We will be at your side and with our love for a wonderful mom, signed Jerry. This is a sweet letter that he wrote to his wife in this really sad time. I also found a letter uh, that was written from Johnny Cash uh, to his wife, June, uh, towards the end of their marriage. This was kind of after his long musical career. Uh, It was later in both of their lives. And he wrote this to his wife. He said, that's really nice, June. You've got a way with words and a way with me as well. The fire and excitement may be gone now that we don't go out there and sing them anymore. But the ring of fire burns around you and I, keeping our love hotter than a pepper sprout. Love, John. These are beautiful, sweet letters uh, that you can find. Things that we don't necessarily do in our culture anymore. But it is with this kind of affection and passion and purpose that Paul writes these letters in the New Testament. And in the case of this book, in the case of the book of Colossians, what Paul is writing to this church is he's writing to this young church who is discovering what it is like to really follow Jesus with their lives. And what it means to really and truly believe in Jesus Christ with their lives. And as we read this book, all the several chapters of the book, we learn that following Jesus from the start to the finish is all about the gospel. One pastor uh, once wrote and has become famous for saying this, that the gospel or the message of the gospel is not just the ABCs of the faith. It's not just the beginning of the faith, but it is the A to Z of the faith. This gospel message saturates the life of faith from its very beginning to its very end. And our passage this morning talks about what the the fruit or the byproduct of this gospel is. And he talks about it really in three different ways how the fruit of the gospel that happens in the world, the fruit of the gospel that happens in us personally, and finally, the fruit of the gospel described in great detail. The first thing we see is, is the fruit of the gospel in this world, and we read about it In verses 3 to 6, Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and growing. You see, what Paul does is he opens his letter by reminding the church in Colossae that the message of the gospel is bearing fruit, not just in their lives, but it is bearing fruit all throughout the ancient world. There's a powerful verse uh, in Romans chapter 1. Where Paul writes, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Now we sometimes miss the force of what Paul is saying when we read that verse. But that word power in the original language is the same word that we get our root word for dynamite. And what Paul is saying is that when the gospel is communicated when the gospel is unleashed when it is set loose it is like dynamite exploding it explodes in power and changes lives and changes communities and changes cities and entire regions and in effect it changes culture you see we often like to think only subjectively about the gospel we like to think only what it does for us, and it does tremendous things for us. In fact, that's my next point in the sermon. But we also have to think about what the gospel does objectively. There's an objective component to it as well. It, it bears fruit externally because changed lives in the process affect change in communities. And when there's change in communities, it affects change in cities. And when there's change in cities, it affects change in regions and cultures. And this is exactly what you see in the first century world that Paul is writing from. Because as Paul went from city to city with the gospel, people's lives were changed, communities were changed, cities were changed, and the entire ancient world was changed because of the power of the message of the gospel. We all know that uh, it is uh, the election season right now. Some of us like to ignore the fact that it is that. Other people are uh, captured by it. It's all they really uh, think about. And I've kind of gone back and forth throughout the election season. But what happens in the election season is the idea of change becomes uh, the front of everyone's mind. Because what what do politicians do? They promise change. And some deliver and some don't deliver. And we see it not just uh, in our nation, but we also see it in our city. We have a very important primary election coming up in our city just two weeks away. And we all look at the city and say that Baltimore sure has its fair share of problems. And Politicians are all over the news claiming that they are the best ones to bring change and to solve the problems and to to implement their promises and some do and some don't and we all vote accordingly and we should. But we can't forget that ultimately the greatest power for change doesn't come from politicians or from social initiatives, as important as as those, those things are. But ultimately, the greatest power for change comes from God himself. And the instrument of the gospel has become the instrument with which he affects that change. The gospel is the means by which the power of God is unleashed into our culture. Because only the gospel can affect us in our deepest and most profound places. Only the gospel affects true and lasting and real change at the level of the heart. What does this power look like? What is, how do we describe it? What does it look like when it is unleashed in our culture? Verse 4 helps us understand that where it says, Your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. What it looks like is a radical faith in the person of Jesus Christ and a radical love that is shared between one another. See, the fruit of the gospel is not just impacting our lives, but it is impacting the world. But what is true externally is also true of us internally because Paul also talks about the fruit of the gospel in us, the fruit of the gospel in our lives and our hearts as well. Look at verse 6. He says, "'The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world.'" is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Once again, we see that the fruit of this gospel is always love. It is always translated into a growing and ever-increasing love for God and ultimately a love for other people. But if you've been on this journey of faith for any length of period of time, you know that that is easier said than it is done. We all know what it's like to find it difficult to love someone else and at times very difficult To love God. We have a hard enough time loving our own families, let alone what God calls us to do in terms of loving our enemies. Instead, what we do is we spend most of our time being annoyed at other people, being competitive with other people, or being envious of other people. So all of us can look deeply into our hearts and observe a lack of love in our hearts for both God and and also for others. We see apathy when we look at our own hearts. So the common response is to try harder. I'm just going to try harder to love God. I'm going to try harder to love other people. And we make it all about our own personal effort. But at the end of the day, no matter how hard we try, we cannot affect change in our hearts. At the end of the day, it is more about belief than it is about effort. Because the more you and I profoundly believe the gospel... The more each day we reflect on our sin and the lengths God went to provide our redemption, the more love begins to take root in our hearts. Do you find it hard to love God and to love other people? Then the answer is to believe the gospel more to look to Christ, to look to the ultimate expression of his love on the cross, to look honestly at ourselves, to reflect on the mess of sin that we are, but then to think about what Jesus did on our behalf, to remember the lengths that he went to save sinners like you and me. And when we do, the more we reflect on that, the more we believe the gospel, when we do, we'll begin to see the fruit of love spring up into our hearts. In verse 9 of this first chapter, uh, Paul kind of pivots in his discussion, and he tells the Colossians about his prayers for them. Now, I really believe that one of the most intimate and caring things that we can do for one another is to pray for one another. And it's why people both within the church and even outside of the church, whenever they hear about someone else struggling, say what? Well, I will go pray for you. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. But Paul does one better with the church in Colossae. He says, I pray for you all the time, but guess what? Now I'm going to tell you what it is exactly that I pray for you. And he says this in verse 9, And so, for the day we've heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, what Paul is saying is he's praying for greater fruit in their lives concerning the gospel. But he's saying that that fruit doesn't just look like love, but it looks like all these other things too. It looks like being filled with the knowledge of God's will, of being characterized by spiritual wisdom and understanding. It looks like walking our lives in a manner that is worthy of God and pleases Him. It means not just our deeds, but also growing in our knowledge of the gospel and our belief in it. And again, as you read this list, our inclination is to go out and to try harder to make these things true about our lives. But in the end, the answer isn't to try harder. There is a place for effort, and that effort is right and important. But ultimately, the answer is not effort, it's belief. The answer is to believe more. Because we, you, and I become Christians by leave, by believing the gospel for the first time, but we also grow as Christians by believing the gospel more and more. A lot of people think that once you believe in the gospel, then our the responsibility for our growth always already goes back to our efforts. But what Paul is saying is no. It's all about grace. It's all about the gospel from the start to the finish. Fruit comes in our lives by believing the gospel more and more. Finally, Paul goes on to describe more about this fruit of the gospel in verses 11 to 13. He talks more and more about his, the substance of his prayers for the church in Colossae. He says in verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. I think there's something really beautiful that's happening right here. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big talker. I know that's bizarre to hear from a preacher, right? But I'm not a big talker. Uh, And I really dislike talking on the phone. If I've offended one of you by how short I've been talking on the phone, I am sorry. It's just one of those things that I just don't really like to do. But I will say that if something captures my heart, if there's something that I really get excited about, then I could really talk about it for hours, even though I'm not a big talker. And that is the sense that I get from Paul when we get to these verses. Because I think Paul is just getting excited as he writes this letter. He gets so excited about talking about the gospel that he just can't seem to stop himself. He begins talking about how the gospel gives us strength To endure all of life's difficulties, not just with patience, but to endure them with joy. He talks about how that joy is a thankful joy. It's characterized by gratitude. He talks about how God has given us an inheritance with the saints. And and, and what this means is that God has given us all of the spiritual blessings that Jesus deserved in his perfection and his goodness. He talks about how God has delivered us from the power of this world and the strongholds of darkness. We no longer need to be slaves to sin or to darkness. He talks about how he's transferred us from an old kingdom to a new kingdom of light. He talks about how we've been given redemption, how we've been purchased by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And atop it all, we have received forgiveness for all of our sins, all of them. You see, Paul is getting captured by his passion and excitement about the gospel. He's saying all of these things we have in the person of Jesus Christ and in faith in him. And the question is, what more do we Need what more do we need? What more could we need? Beck and I have this joke around the house, and we talk about we talk about how the house was often uh, what it was like before we had kids, and then what it was like after we had kids. We should go around saying b k and a k before kids and after kids. Because before we had our kids, we had a, we, 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 it was pretty easy to have a neat house. Everything was kind of in its place and it was where it was supposed to be and, and where we wanted it to be. And then after kids, it all changed. And we entered into this new battle with stuff that tends to take over the entire house. And I'm not just talking about stuff that we need for uh, the survival of kids. I'm talking more about the greatest battleground of stuff, and that is the battleground of toys that always threaten to take over a home. And if you come to our house, you'll know that, that we take uh, most of our kids' toys we've put into the basement. We've kind of just said this is, this is their zone. We're going to let them be in the basement. And uh, I remember one day in particular, it was right after Christmas, which is when the battleground with toys and stuff is the worst because an influx of toys has just entered the house. I remember I was in the basement and one of my kids uh, came up to me and, and said to me, and it's so funny that I remember this moment. It's like freeze-framed in my brain. The, this child came up to me, and I don't even remember which one it was, but they came up to me and said, Dad, I've got nothing to do. I'm bored. Okay. And it was one of those things like you see it on the movie. The kid starts talking in slow motion as the moment gets freeze-framed, and I can remember at that moment I just my gaze moved from just past my 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 child's eyes to the mountain and sea of toys that was right behind them and reflecting on my child saying there's nothing to do and I'm bored. I thought about this week because I thought about how much I'm just like my kids. Because friends, we are, if you're like me, we do the very same thing with God. For some reason, we feel like he is always withholding something from us. That if only he gave us X, Y, and Z, then we would be content. Then we would be happy in life. But friends, what Paul is saying here is that God has already given us everything. He's given us everything. If you are God's, then he has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. He has given us the farm. He's broken the bank for us. He has given us the inheritance and he's even given us his very own son. What more could we want or need? The challenge becomes to each day believe the gospel more and more and to enjoy the riches that we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we will discover that the fruit of the gospel, the power and fruit of the gospel will be manifested in our lives. Let's pray.